Please bow with me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in your word that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us on the bread of life now, your son Jesus Christ, the word and wisdom of God, we pray for his sake. Amen. A middle school science teacher in Minneapolis is known for regularly posting videos to social media in praise of anarchism, which is a worldview that seeks to undermine all political authority or social hierarchies. Of course, anarchism as a worldview has proven difficult to live out in her own middle school classroom. As she herself admitted, she said, my students this year have no respect for authority. And I love that in a person because I have no respect for authority whatsoever. But it has been a frustrating year because I am the authority. So I'm like, down with the man, but I am the man. Anarchism seems like a classically modern worldview, even postmodern. Until we read the Bible, and we discover in the Bible that Adam was the original anarchist. He wanted to rule himself and the whole world out from under God's rule of him. The human penchant for stubborn self-rule, insubordination and anarchy is in part, one of the reasons that we find the whole book of Proverbs in the Bible to begin with. The whole book of Proverbs is a wise dad talking godly sense into his son. The dad wants his son to live his life in the fear of the Lord, taking God seriously as the one who has all authority to hold him accountable for how he lives. Wisdom is both God's word that talks about fearing the Lord and the habit of living that results from taking God seriously, both in his promises and in his warnings. This morning, we're going to overview Proverbs as a whole book with a particular focus on how Jesus lived the wisdom of Proverbs, yet apparently died the futility of Ecclesiastes. The point of the whole sermon this morning is that Jesus obeyed the precepts of wisdom only to suffer the penalty of foolishness and therefore reaped the reward of righteousness. I think when we take Proverbs in the context of the whole Bible, we read Proverbs back through the lens of Christ, that's what we find. Jesus obeyed the precepts of wisdom only to suffer the penalty of foolishness and therefore he reaped the reward of righteousness. And in this way, Jesus is the praiseworthy son who suffered as if he were the shameful son. And he did that for us in our place. 
So that's what we would call the gospel according to Proverbs. Of course, this study cannot be exhaustive, but it is representative and it is expositional. Expositional preaching exposes, uncovers the point of the passage, no matter how big, and makes that point the point of the sermon. And the overall point of Proverbs in light of Jesus is that he obeyed wisdom's precepts, suffered folly's penalty, and so he earned the reward of righteousness. And that point is made by means of five proverbial contrasts. For each contrast, we'll walk through a few sample Proverbs. We'll hope to see in each case how Jesus obeyed the wisdom of the Proverbs only to suffer the penalty of the contrasting foolishness. Now, I'm not saying that you can or should do this with every single proverb without exception. I am saying, though, that these general contrasts hold. And noticing them helps us see just how good a son Jesus is to his father and just how good a friend and brother he is to us and how Christ himself is the binding thread that sews all of Scripture together. I provided you an outline. Do you guys have an outline Okay, that got distributed. If you don't have an outline, raise your hand and one of the ushers will get it to you. So first, Jesus is the humble son who suffered as the proud. Jesus is the humble son who suffered as the proud. The fear of the Lord is taking him seriously as the only God there is. Fear of the Lord is taking the Lord seriously as the one who can hold you accountable for how you live. Especially if you're a Christian, the fear of the Lord is the fear of God as the one who covenanted with you to save you in Christ. And so fearing the Lord is what obeys the first commandment, no other gods before me or beside me. In that way, fearing the Lord is how you exhibit humility as a creature under the rule of the Creator, and as covenant member under the covenant master. That's where wisdom begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom, it's the beginning of wisdom. You can't be wise if you refuse to fear the Lord. You won't even get off the starting block. Proverbs 8.13, fearing God is the opposite of pride. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Fearing God is the way to real humility. You can't even be humble in the right way if you don't view yourself rightly in relationship to God. So fearing God is the antidote to pride. Wisdom itself pronounces hatred for pride and arrogance. Think about that. Wisdom says, I hate 
pride. Pride is foolishness. Fear of the Lord, then, is the opposite of pride. Fearing God is humility. Pride refuses to fear the Lord. In fact, the opposite of the person who fears the Lord is the proud mocker. In chapter 21, verse 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. So fearing the Lord obeys the first commandment. It's humble. It's not proud. Humble fear of the Lord receives a reward as well. Chapter 22, verses 4 and 5, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. That seems counterintuitive to the world's way of thinking, doesn't it? To the world's way of thinking, self-assertiveness is the way to success and wealth and long life. But not in the Bible. The Bible, it's humility and the fear of the Lord that lead to riches and honor in life. Those who fear the Lord are humble, and those who are humble fear the Lord. Proud mocking of God and of His ways and of His wisdom is punished by contrast. Chapter 13, verse 13, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. So you despise wisdom, you get punished. You love wisdom, you respect wisdom, you fear the Lord. There's reward in that. Now look, this is just as applicable to adults as it is to children. This is applicable to children as it is to adults. Some of you adults learn this later in life to your own hurt. And you're still paying for it. Some of you children are wondering whether you should pay any attention at all to wisdom because you like the idea of doing things your own way. Read Proverbs. Chapter 10, verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. You see that all the time. Chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, there's one that makes you stop in your tracks. Do you believe that? Is it better... To be of lowly spirit with poor people than to divide riches with proud people. Is that how you think? Twenty nine twenty three, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Chapter 3, verse 34, toward the scorners he is scornful. God is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Remember that. God scorns those who scorn him and those who scorn his people and his ways. You will not outscorn God. He will get the better of you if you decide to go that way. And churches like this are here to tell you that, not because 
we don't love you, but because we do. And we don't want you to suffer that. God is not to be trifled with. He always makes the punishment fit the crime. Pride scorns God. But what does pride hate more than anything? Being scorned. Being mocked. Being ridiculed. But Jesus is humble. He was born in a barn. He was the son of a tradesman. He said of himself, I am gentle and lowly of heart. He washed his disciples' feet. He entered Jerusalem as king, but he came humble, mounted not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, and there he endured the mocking of scoffers. He showed you how humble he was there in the way that he endured scorn. He showed you there wasn't an ounce of pride in his heart because he didn't resent the mocking. Roman soldiers gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, mocking him. Oh, we're going to dress you up like a king. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. <clears throat> That's playground stuff. But from Roman soldiers. When they crucified him, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I mean, how self-assured to talk to Jesus like that hanging on the cross. Save yourself, man. If you are who you say you are, just come down. Look at how confident you can be about scorning the Son of God, the ways of God, the people of God, and how wrong you can be in that confidence, in that arrogance. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, yet because he humbled himself to suffer as if he were the proud one himself, God the Father exalted him truly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess him Lord. And because Jesus is now rightly exalted, those who mock him without repenting will be mocked themselves. There's a sobering passage in Proverbs 120 through 33. And in part of that paragraph, Wisdom says this, How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? How long will they make fun of truth? How long will they make fun of righteousness and wisdom and holiness? Because I have called and you refuse to listen, Wisdom says, because you have ignored all my counsel 
I will laugh at your calamity. I will laugh at your destruction. I will laugh at your disaster when it comes. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Now listen. You may like to just chalk that up to the Old Testament. Well, that's the Old Testament. Old Testament's judgmental. We don't have to listen to that. You know who quoted that? Jesus. Jesus. John 7, 34, where he says to the temple police who seek him out to arrest him, you will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You want to reject wisdom? Either in Scripture or incarnate. Now one day you will find it's too late to pursue Him. He says it again, John 8.21, to the religious leaders themselves, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin, Jesus said. Is that the Jesus you believe in? Would your Jesus say something like that? Because if he wouldn't, it's not the Bible's Jesus that you believe in. You've created a different Jesus who wouldn't say something like that. Jesus is God's wisdom personified. There's coming a day when it will be too late to seek Jesus for salvation. It'll, too, it'll be too late to turn into a wise person. Toward the unrepentant scorners, he will be scornful. Friend, do not let that be you. Young person, Teenager growing up in a Christian home. Don't let that be you. You mock your parents when they teach you wisdom. You better be careful about that. Because that has a trajectory. That has an end. Mockers will be mocked. Not just by the world, not, not by their parents, by God. Now is the time of salvation. Quit your mocking of the truth and trust in Jesus and obey Him and submit yourselves to those who teach Him to you. Secondly, Jesus is the righteous son who suffered as the wicked. He's the righteous son, but he suffered as the wicked. One of the major contrasts in all of Proverbs is between righteousness and wickedness. It dominates chapters 11 and 12. And even where the word, words righteousness and wickedness are not used, the same contrast is still present when Solomon is illustrating righteousness Righteous and wicked uses of money, words, time, 
of authority, of relationships. Chapter 11, verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Eleven eighteen. the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. You're wicked. You get money or friendships by lying. Then the wages, the benefits of that lying will cheat you. That's how God set the world up. Don't do that. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. Chapter 11, verse 20, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Eleven nineteen: whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die over and over and over again. Righteousness, evil. Righteousness, wickedness. Righteousness, wickedness. Proverbs 10, 24, and 25. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. And of course, Jesus came doing good, healing, teaching truth. But in John 8, the religious leaders want to kill him. Jesus answered them, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. And a few verses later, he protests his own righteousness with a rhetorical question, John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? You tell me what I've done wrong. In response, they ask a rhetorical question of their own. John 8, 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? You have a demon? To which Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. There it is. Jesus is the righteous son of God who honors his father, obeys his commandments, keeps his standards, and is treated as a wicked demoniac in his lifetime. as if he's the one leading the nation astray as a false prophet. On trial, Pilate's wife warns him, warns Pilate himself, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Three times in Luke 23, Pilate confesses Jesus' righteousness. I find no guilt in this man. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And Luke specifies in Luke 23, 22, a third time, Pilate said to him, why, what evil has he done? Even in Pilate's eyes, Jesus was righteous. Even Pilate knew better than to execute Jesus as if he were a wicked man. Pilate and his wife knew that Jesus was righteous. And these were the people that put him to death.
Yet in his death he was condemned as if he were a wicked man, so that the wicked might be counted righteous. That's you and me. Jesus lived the wisdom of Proverbs, and yet he died in the apparent futility and absurdity of Ecclesiastes 8.13. There is a vanity, an absurdity, a senselessness, a nonsense that takes place on the earth. What is it? That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Nonsense, absurdity. But of course, Jesus did this not merely for the irony of it. He did it for us on our behalf, in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin. Not just for the fun of it, not just for the irony of it. For what? For who? For us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him because we were not righteous. We were wicked. Peter says, He committed no sin, totally righteous. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Not that we might go on sinning so that grace might increase. Not that we might go on sinning so that we could be comfortable in our sin and have eternity when we die. No, that we might die to our sin and live now to righteousness. And so Peter again says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Third, Jesus is the wise son who suffered as the fool. Jesus is the wise son who suffered as the fool. Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified and talks in the first person. Wisdom says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Paragraphs like that make us think this is Jesus talking, especially when John opens his gospel on the transcendent note that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It is that eternal Word who took on human flesh and entered time, the person of Jesus. Paul says, Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is God's wisdom in the flesh. And that being the case, we should look for how Jesus embodies and models wisdom when Proverbs contrasts it with foolishness. Chapter 10, verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments. The wise of heart will receive commandments. How well do you receive 
commandments. But a babbling fool will come to ruin. Presumably because he will not receive commandments. Jesus wisely received and kept his father's commands. Proverbs 29, 11, the fool vents all his anger. The wise holds it back. Mm. The fool vents his anger. But when reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. He held back his anger. Even when the anger of fools was vented against him, he held his back. Proverbs 3.35, the wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. And Jesus is the one who is exalted to God's right hand in honor. Proverbs 10.13, on the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. And yet look at how Jesus died. Jesus' teaching was wise beyond compare. Chapter 11, verse 30, the fruit of the, of the righteous is a tree of life. Whoever captures souls is wise. Jesus himself is the tree of life who saves souls with the fruit of his teaching and of his self-sacrifice. He exemplified and obeyed wisdom, the wisdom of every proverb, to the point, in fact, that he surpassed proverbial wisdom. He himself said, Matthew 12, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who went and visited Solomon for his wisdom, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. The Apostle Paul was only following that teaching of Christ when he said in Colossians 2.3 that Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are just what Solomon promised his son in Proverbs 1. Yet the great irony of the gospel is that Jesus lived as the wise son and yet suffered as the fool. Proverbs 14.3 By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Nothing foolish ever crossed Jesus' lips. And yet he suffered the rod on his back. a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, suffered the beatings deserved by the fool. And that dynamic, that irony, is the reason Paul said that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
The truth is this. Jesus the wise suffered for your foolishness, sinner, and mine. There's no other explanation. That wisdom, this ironic reversal of expectation, this suffering of the wise in the place of the fool, this is the secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2. Jesus lived wisely in every way and yet died under the rod reserved for the fool. And he did that so foolish people like us might become wise unto salvation. The natural person recoils at this kind of wisdom, doesn't want to receive it. Mm. Surely that's not true. I don't want to be governed by that logic That doesn't sound like wisdom to me. Not to a foolish person. People people don't accept these things because they seem like foolishness to the natural heart born in sin. So you know why some people come to church? They come to church to hear the opposite of that kind of reasoning. They come to church to hear things like, how can Jesus make you a more successful business person? How can Jesus make you more self-confident and self-assertive How can Jesus make you more self-confident so that you can project better and interview better and make more money and have more friends? And this is the opposite of that. This is saying, Jesus, Jesus is different than that. Yes, Jesus may make your life marginally better in some way or another in this life. He can keep you from the consequences of your foolishness if you listen to him. But look at how Jesus lived. Did Jesus live to maximize his potential in this life? He willingly gave up his life at 33. He was on about something else altogether. But if this is what you find to be your kind of wisdom, the righteous dying for the wicked, the wise dying for the fool, then Jesus is your kind of Savior. Fourth, Jesus is the diligent son who suffered as the lazy. He's a diligent son who suffered as the lazy. Time and again, the wise dad in Proverbs commends diligence and warns his son against laziness. 10.26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a slugger to those who send him. You know what it's like to have smoke in your eyes? (laughs) Not cool. You rub it out. That's what it's like when you send a lazy person to do a job. The moral of that story is don't send a lazy person to do the job. The moral of that story is don't you be the lazy person. 12.24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. 21.25, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hand refuses to labor.
24, 33 to 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. 28, 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Lots of people need to hear that. You follow a worthless pursuit, spend all day playing video games, doing whatever you need to do to trend on social media, you have plenty of poverty and foolishness in your life and heartache. It's thematic. Diligence leads to wealth and honor. Laziness leads to poverty and dishonor. This is a favorite theme among all parents of teenagers. And it should be a favorite theme among political economists. Be diligent. Work. Work. Consistent hard work was a theme of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He was feeding on working in the service of God and doing evangelism. That was not drudgery to him. It was not draining to him. It was delight. It was rejuvenating to him. John 5, 17, my father is working until now. I also am working. John 9, we must be doing the works of, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus encouraged the people of his day to make the most of his presence with them, to do what they can while they can, while they still had him with them in the light of the world. John eleven nine. Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. Jesus affirmed to the Father in John 17, just before he died, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. John 19, 30, his very last words from the cross, affirmed that he had done that work. It is finished. I did it. I did it, Father. It's all done. Just like you told me. I did it all the way. I did it right away. And I did it with a happy heart. And now it is finished. Jesus was diligent to do the will of the Father who sent him. He was not like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes of the one who sent him. Jesus deserves to rule, and yet he lived in poverty, and his hand was put to forced labor in carrying the cross, but it was all by design. Jesus did all his righteous works, not only so that he could offer himself a spotless sacrifice for us. He accomplished his righteous works in order to work out a perfect righteousness that his Father could impute or credit to our account by faith so that he might count us as having done diligently all the righteous works Jesus did 
He came as the second Adam to work out a diligent righteousness that Adam failed to do so that as the first Adam sinned, guilt was imputed to all those he represented. So Christ's work and righteousness are imputed, credited to all those he now represents. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Fifth and finally, Jesus is the obedient son who suffered as the stubborn. He's the obedient son who suffered as the stubborn one. Multiple times in Proverbs, the wise dad tells his son to hear and heed his parental instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Hear, my son, and accept my words. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your heart to my understanding. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. Why do you think he has to talk like that to his son? Why do you think he has to say that so many times? Because he knows the heart of his son. That his son is stubborn. Just like every son. Listen to me. Son, you need to listen to me. And I have to tell you to listen to me because I know you don't want to listen to me because you think you don't need to listen to me and you think you know better. And that's how your Heavenly Father has to talk to you. Listen to me. My son, listen. Accept my commandments. And he says it to you over and over and over and over and over because you're stubborn and you don't want to listen. And you want to make the Bible say what you want it to say and you want a preacher to say what you want a preacher to say to make you feel how you want to feel. And God says to you, no, listen to my instruction. Don't try to make me say something that I don't say. You listen to me, God says. You listen to my word. Don't try to put words into my mouth. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Isaiah 5.12, the wise dad warns his own son against the deep regret of spurning wise counsel. Lest you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Man, I wish I would have listened to wisdom when I had the chance to turn from my foolishness. But I didn't, and now look where I am. Young person, listen to that. Listen to Proverbs 5, 12 to 14. Go home and read it over and over and over and over and over again. You memorize that. 
This is what your parents are telling you. You're going to regret it if you don't listen. The stubborn son in Proverbs is the one who stiffens his neck against correction, refuses to learn from corrective discipline, always resents reproof, always acts like he's being hard done by, being mistreated because he's being disciplined. How could you do that to me? How could you say that to me? How could you take that away from me? How could you... Well, because you're disobeying. That's how and that's why. And you still don't listen to instruction. You still don't listen to correction. You still don't listen to discipline. So I got to keep doing it until you do. That's Proverbs. And even some adults relate to God like that. Why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to suffer this? Why did you da 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 da? And the Lord says, Well, have you listened? Have you repented? Have you changed? Have you received my commandments? Okay. Then here comes another round of discipline. Until you listen. Until you stop resenting it. And you start to soften under it. And turn from your stupidity. And your stubborn sin. And repent. And say, okay. I don't know best, you know best. Right. He's been telling you this for centuries. The obedient son accepts discipline. He grows from it, he reaps the benefit. The stubborn son resents discipline, refuses to be corrected by it, and reaps disaster. It's just how it is. The sooner you get that through your heart, the better your relationship with the Lord is going to go. And Jesus modeled it from his childhood. Jesus obeyed his earthly parents. Luke 2, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And they did not understand that saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. This is one of the most amazing sentences in all the earth. And was submissive to them. Children, listen to that. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, eternal Son of God, creator of all things, submitted to his parents. Are you the eternal Son of God? Did you create the world? from nothing? Are you sinless? Are you eternally wise? Did you write scripture? No, you did not. If Jesus submitted to his parents while he was on earth, how much more, how much more ought you to submit to your parents? And adults, before you think you are off the hook, if Jesus submitted to his earthly parents, how much more ought we to submit 
to the authorities that are over us, even when we resent them. In his wilderness temptation, Jesus obeyed his father's word and used it each time to parry the thrusts of Satan, Matthew 4, each time replying, it is written, it is written, it is written. I know you're tempting me to take the kingdom without the cross. I know what you're trying to do, Satan, but this is what my father said, and I'm sticking with that. Jesus did not repel the temptations of Satan simply by his own divine power. He repelled it by obedience to his father's word and letting his father's word govern the way he perceived reality. Jesus was attentive to his heavenly father's wisdom all the way through his earthly teaching and ministry. He said in John 8, he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. That's all he was doing. I declared to the world Not my own word, but what I heard from him. A few verses later, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He said later in John 8, I told you the truth that I heard from God. And again, I honor my Father but you dishonor me. There it is again. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. They treated him as one who refused to be corrected by them when in fact Jesus needed no correction at all. Jesus is the obedient son of God but suffered as if he did not listen to the voice of his teachers or incline his ear to his... He he suffered as a stubborn one even though he was not stubborn. He was not just at the brink of utter ruin But he was, in fact, ruined at the cross in the midst of the assembled congregation. And yet again, it was all by design, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. It was all by design. In each of those five contrasts, we have seen the summary truth that Jesus is the praiseworthy son who suffered as the shameful one. Chapter 10, verse 1, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. 1725, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Jesus lived his whole life as the humble, righteous, wise, diligent, obedient and therefore praiseworthy son who would make his father glad. And yet from the beginning, his mother Mary was told that he would be a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also. This wise and obedient son, praiseworthy in his life, will become a sorrow to his mother in his death. Even on the cross, though, Jesus honored his mother by entrusting her to the care of the disciple he loved. Though Jesus' death brought sorrow and bitterness to his mother, she would rejoice again. In three days, Jesus' heavenly Father would vindicate his son's righteousness by raising him from the dead bodily. A few weeks later, 
Mary's mother would be there in Acts 1 and 2 with the rest of the disciples when the risen Christ poured out his spirit on them at Pentecost. Jesus perfectly honored and obeyed his heavenly father even through the blame and shame of the cross. In fact, it was through suffering, that very shame, that Jesus' father disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through him in Christ's death on the cross. If we are righteous people treated as wicked, we are only righteous because of what Jesus first did for us when we were still wicked. If we are wise people treated as fools in this life for Christ, it is only because Jesus first suffered the penalty of our own foolishness in our place. If we are obedient people, treated by others as if we are disobedient, it is only because Jesus first obeyed God for us when we were unwilling to obey him ourselves. And so we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God with a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, Jesus is worthy of our praise precisely because he suffered our shame in our place for our pride, for our wickedness, for our foolishness, for our laziness, for our disobedience. That is the gospel according to Proverbs. And I wonder, does that seem like wisdom to you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be the wise son, to suffer our foolishness in our place and for our sins, to be the righteous son, to suffer the penalty of all our wickedness. May we become more like him as we look at him in scripture. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.